Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, incest, and murder. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. In February 1923, local villagers gathered at the Hinter Kaifek farm. When the Gruber family called it home, the Bavarian fields bustled with activity. But now, one year after their brutal slaughter, the land was desolate and chillingly quiet. The deed to the property had since gone to Carl Gabriel Sr., the father of Victoria Gruber's deceased husband. But Carl had no interest living at a crime scene, so he asked his neighbors to help demolish the home. The villagers worked slowly, tearing down materials to be repurposed until they reached the attic, where they found something suspicious. Some of the floorboards could be removed. Underneath the wood panels, Carl Sr. discovered a mattock, a tool similar to a pickaxe, covered in dried blood and clumps of human hair. It was the murder weapon police had been searching for. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode on the Hinterkaifeck slaughter. In 1922, on a small German farm, five members of the Gruber family, along with their maid, were brutally murdered. Last time, we learned about the family's scandalous past, including Victoria Gruber's many love affairs. We also followed neighbor Lorenz Schlittenbauer as he discovered the mangled bodies, as well as the police's desperate search for answers. This time, we'll explore a century's worth of suspects, from local robbers to militarized anti-communist groups. Many believe the Grubers were victims of senseless random violence, while others suspect it was a targeted act of vengeance, possibly committed by one of Victoria's former lovers. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On April 5th, 1922, Munich detective Georg Reingruber arrived at Hinterkaifeck Farm to a gruesome scene. 64-year-old Andreas Gruber, his 72-year-old wife, Cecilia, their 35-year-old daughter, Victoria, and their 7-year-old granddaughter, Cecilia Jr.'s bodies, were laying in the barn. They'd been bludgeoned to death with a sharp object. Cecilia Jr.'s throat had also been slashed. The family's 44-year-old maid, Maria Baumgartner, and their two-year-old son, Josef, were found in their beds, murdered the very same way. Detective Reingruber suspected it could have been a robbery turned violent. Between the nearby towns of Grobern, Kaifek, and Vaidhofen, there was no shortage of petty crime. At Hinterkaifeck, the Grubers often dealt with and even employed local thieves. Hyperinflation and unemployment was on the rise since the start of World War I. Most couldn't afford to live on legitimate wages, so many resorted to desperate measures to stay alive. The Grubers couldn't be picky about their farmhands. World War I had killed 13% of German men, and there was a serious shortage of competent workers which could be why the Grubers hired the Bickler brothers. Anton and Carl Bickler had criminal pasts and were known around town as troublemakers. So when Detective Reingruber caught wind of their connection to the Grubers, they became some of his first suspects. At the time of the murders, Anton was in his 20s. He'd worked odd jobs for farms in the area and had been caught stealing on more than one occasion. His younger brother, Carl, followed in his footsteps. Despite their reputation, Andreas Gruber hired the Bicklers, which is how Anton Bickler met one of their maids, Kretzens Rieger. After Kretzens arrived at Hinterkaifeck in November 1920, Kretzens apparently caught Anton's eye. In her testimony, Kretzens said Anton frequently came to her window in the dead of night to talk. She never elaborated on the full extent of their relationship, but she reportedly denied his many romantic advances. Anton urged Kretzens to quit her job and run away with him, but she never followed through. Anton later told locals that Andreas Gruber had stood in the way of their relationship. Because of this, Anton reportedly made frequent comments about how the Gruber family should be slain. Kretzens quit the Gruber household in September 1921, but this was only partly due to Anton's threats. Between hearing inexplicable footsteps in the attic and feeling like she was constantly being watched, Kretzens suspected Hinterkaifeck Farm could be haunted. Whether this was true or not, her refusal to stay inevitably saved her life. When neighbors found the Gruber's corpses six months later, Kretzens didn't blame ghosts or evil spirits. She gave the police two names, 
Anton and Carl Bickler. She cited Anton's calming influence on the family's dog as evidence. This would have allowed the brothers to sneak around the property without being noticed. And of course, she highlighted their disdain for the Grubers and Anton's many threats aimed at the family. Kretzens wasn't the only one to point fingers in the direction of the Bickler brothers. A neighbor named Simon Schnoecker insisted they were the killers. Months before the murders, Simon saw Carl in the nearby town of Vaidhofen stuffing his face with snacks. Unemployed at the time, Simon couldn't understand how he could afford so much food. So Simon made an offhanded joke about how Carl hardly ever worked. To which Carl apparently responded saying, He'd be stupid to get his hands dirty when he could get them bloody. On May 4th, 1922, a month after the killings, police brought Carl Bickler in for questioning. He openly admitted to committing thefts in the area, but Carl denied any connection to the killings, and he came with an alibi. He told police that he'd been working in the town of Altignenburg as a carpenter's assistant from late March to early April, over 40 miles southeast of Hinterkaifeck. A quick trip between the two locations would have been difficult. On the night of the murders, both Carl and Anton claimed to be drinking at a local bar after Anton's shift. Investigators tracked down a waitress who corroborated their account. Anton and Carl Bickler couldn't have been the killers. The Bicklers may have been innocent, but Detective Reingruber knew another pair of criminal brothers closely connected to Hinterkaifeck, Josef and Andreas Toller. The Toller brothers grew up in a settlement close to the farm. Josef was 26 years old and Andreas was 23 at the time. While they were never employed by the Grubers, they knew the property well. They'd previously tried to rob it. A few months before the murders, witnesses allegedly saw Andreas Gruber chasing the Tollers off his farm with a rifle. As the two thieves escaped, Andreas fired shots. And aside from petty crime, the Tollers shared another interest with the Bickler brothers, Kretzens Rieger. The older brother, Josef, would apparently stand beneath Kretzens' window at night, trying to get her attention. This was around the same time that Anton Bickler also visited the maid, but it appears the two never crossed paths. According to Kretzens, she always ignored Josef's late-night visits, with the exception of one evening when she opened her window to see what he wanted. Yosef asked the maid if she knew where each member of the Gruber family slept at night, where they hid their cash, and how much money they had on the property. Shaken and confused by the questions, Kretzens told him she had no idea. But eerily, Yosef seemed to already know the answers. He apparently recited back to her which rooms the family slept in, along with the different places they hid their money. Kretzens noticed another figure lurking nearby at the time, whom she believed to be Josef's brother, Andreas. Before they left, the two brothers apparently shifted their eyes upward, as if signaling toward the attic. As we mentioned earlier, for weeks prior to the encounter, Kretzens had heard footsteps coming from the attic. 
but they'd been coming from the exact place the brothers were now looking. Maybe the Tallers were sneaking around Hinterkaifeck, collecting information about the family while they slept. And the events of this strange night only became more terrifying. After the Toller brothers visited Kretzens, sometime around midnight, the door to her room suddenly opened and closed by itself. Then it did it again, over and over. Were the Tallers inside the home? Kretzens didn't see anyone, which is why she assumed it was a spirit. But as Kretzens would soon learn, there are some evils you just can't run from. Coming up, Detective Reingruber loses the thread in his burglary theory. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After the brutal slaughter of six people on Hinterkaifeck Farm in 1922, investigators crossed out one pair of criminal brothers, the Bicklers, as suspects, only to replace them with another, Josef and Andreas Toller. Police discovered signs that someone had been sleeping in the family's attic. Perhaps the Tallers were lurking above the Gruber's heads without them knowing. Unfortunately, their maid's strange interaction with Yosef wasn't enough to accuse them of any crimes. But a year or so later, Kretzens was working at another farm in a nearby town. One of her co-workers happened to be related to the Taller brothers. When they found out who Kretzens was, they threatened her, claiming the brothers would kill her too if she continued to connect them to the murders. This death threat allowed the police to take the Toller brothers into custody. They remained under lock and key for about a month. But once again, the police couldn't find the hard evidence they needed to formally convict them. Keep in mind, this was 1920s Germany. Fingerprinting technology had only recently emerged in the field. 
If the brothers had stayed in the attic, it's unlikely the police would have had access to tools that could place the suspects at the scene. And as a possible result, the Tyler brothers walked free. There's no further record of the Toller brothers' whereabouts, but Kretzens reportedly lived in fear, waiting for Josef and Andreas to show up at her window again, wanting vengeance. Luckily, they never did. Next, Detective Reingerber began examining crimes similar to the Hinterkaifeck slaughter. According to a few old newspapers, the Grubers were not the only victims of random violence at the time. In 1920, someone had reportedly bludgeoned a farmer and his wife to death in their bed 50 miles away from Hinterkaifeck. Similar to the Grubers, the killer had covered their bodies with blankets. And two other murders occurred within a 10-mile radius of Hinterkaifeck, within months of the Grubers' deaths. In one case, an intended victim escaped but couldn't identify her attacker. But while nobody was arrested for any of the crimes, there were plenty of leads. And for Reingruber, one suspect stood out from the rest. His name was Josef Bartel. Bartel was once the local baker. And for years, locals considered him a pleasant, kind-hearted man. But that changed after World War I. In 1916, the army drafted Bartle and sent him to the north of France, where he joined the 13th Reserve Infantry Regiment. After several months of trench warfare, Bartle was wounded in action. He came home with what modern psychiatrists would likely call post-traumatic stress disorder. As a result, in 1919, Bartle's family checked him into a psychiatric hospital. Bartle was then linked to one of the violent crimes Reingerber had been investigating. But not by any hard evidence. According to John H. Dawson's book, Hinterkaifeck, Germany's Unsolved Farm Murders, a clairvoyant placed Bartle at one of the scenes during a spiritual investigation. As we learned in part one, the use of clairvoyance was considered a legitimate crime-solving technique at the time. So, while a psychic's word was the only evidence against him, Reingruber made Bartle a suspect in the Hinterkaifeck case. And the psychic's words were bolstered by the fact that Bartle was currently missing. In 1921, a year before the Gruber's murders, Bartle had broken out of the psychiatric hospital. The location was only 60 miles away from the Hinterkaifeck farm and nobody knew where Bartle had gone. Reingruber issued a warrant for Bartle's arrest in connection to the Hinterkaifeck killings. He then searched Bartle's home, his parents' house, and started questioning people in the area. One man claimed he'd encountered Bartle in the southern town of Bavaria. Bartle had apparently been drinking, and the man overheard him confessing to the Hinterkaifeck murders. Another witness swore that a man who fit Bartle's description paid him with a coin covered in blood. But these rumors never led to anything substantial. Bartle was never brought in for questioning. And as far as we can tell, he was never found at all. Reaching another dead end, Reingruber turned his attention to yet another set of trouble brothers, Adolf and Anton Gump. These siblings were neither thieves nor psychiatric patients, 
They were war heroes, at least depending on who you asked. Like Bartle, both Anton and Adolf fought and lived through the horrors of World War I. When the newly formed Weimar Republic surrendered on behalf of Germany in 1918, the two men returned to civilian life. Anton went to a town called Ingolstadt, just 20 miles away from Hinterkaifeck. He married a local woman named Franziska, got a job as a farmer, and reportedly built a peaceful life for himself. But Adolf followed a different path. Along with thousands of dejected soldiers, he'd been radicalized by the end of the war. He joined nationalist groups and began condemning the Treaty of Versailles. Adolf and many other Germans believed the treaty insulted their country's legacy and the countless lives that had been lost. Men like Adolf continued the fight against Germany's so-called enemies. Many volunteered for private military groups, like the Freikorps, who sought to end communist uprisings by murdering alleged supporters and assassinating political leaders. In 1918, Adolf joined the Freikorps and was stationed in Munich, about 40 miles south of Hinterkaifeck. Three years later, Adolf and the Freikorps marched into Poland to seize control, and violence ensued. The specific details are unclear, but it appears the fighting spilled into neighboring villages, impacting innocent civilians, and Adolf and others murdered nine farmers. A warrant was issued for Adolf's arrest, but nothing came of it. The Freikorps often got away with crimes. A number of police officers and politicians supported their ruthless, bloody methods, so long as it meant preserving their vision of Germany. But the arrest warrant put Adolf Gump on Detective Reingruber's radar. As it turned out, the violent extremist had been living only miles away from Hinterkaifeck at the time of the Gruber's murders. On April 9, 1922, four days after examining the crime scene, Rhein Gruber initiated a search for Adolf Gump. He even sent a letter directly to Adolf himself, inquiring about his whereabouts. Adolf never responded, and for whatever reason, Rhein Gruber never followed up. It's possible that the inspector also supported the Freikorps and decided to let him off easy. Regardless, Adolf was never convicted of any crimes. More than 20 years later, in 1944, Adolf died in a bicycle accident. But 10 years after his death, Adolf's sister delivered a deathbed confession to a clergyman. She said her brother had done something unforgivable. She believed he'd murdered the Grubers with the help of their brother. Anton. Coming up, prosecutors work to convict the Gumps and name the Hinterkaifeck killer. Now, back to the story. Due to his history of politically motivated murders, Adolf Gump became a suspect in the 1922 Hinterkaifeck murders. He was never convicted. But more than 30 years after the killings, his sister accused him and their brother Anton of the slaughter. Adolf had died a decade before the confession, but Anton was still alive to defend himself. 
After hearing the woman's confession, the clergyman approached a public prosecutor named Dr. Andreas Pop. Pop immediately ordered the arrest of Anton Gump. At the time of the murders, Anton was married and working in Ingolstadt, about 20 miles from Hinterkaifeck. He had no alibi for the night of the murders, but this was, in a sense, forgivable. After all, who remembers where they were on a single night 30 years ago? But Anton insisted that he'd never met the Grubers. He hadn't even heard about the Hinterkaifeck murders before they hit the papers. More importantly, he didn't know why his sister accused him before she died. One detail saved Anton. The police suspected the killer had been living in the attic for weeks before the attack. Anton's absence at home and at work would have been noticed by someone, and he had plenty of people to vouch for his general whereabouts. But this wasn't good enough for Andreas Pop. The prosecutor was desperate to be the one to identify the Hinterkaifeck killer. So he suggested that Adolf, who hadn't settled down or started a family, may have had more time to lurk around Hinterkaifeck than Anton. He even proposed that Adolf could have had an affair with Victoria Gruber, even fathered her two-year-old son, Josef. But this was all pure speculation. There was zero evidence that Adolf had ever stepped foot on Hinterkaifeck property. Dr. Pop seemed more interested in gaining notoriety for solving the famous case than bringing the real murderer to justice. And fortunately for Anton, authorities noticed. His name was cleared, and once again, the Hinterkaifeck case went cold. Years earlier, Detective Reingruber had struggled to make sense of what he then considered a random act of violence. But maybe Reingruber's problem was that the crime wasn't random at all. Andreas, Cecilia Sr., Victoria, and Cecilia Jr. were all found in the barn, while two others were found in their beds, which meant something probably lured them outside. The first people to arrive after the murders found a single cow roaming free. Perhaps the killer had let it out, knowing that one of the family members would come to its rescue. And that's when they struck. Or they'd heard someone's voice. After conducting tests, police determined that someone yelling from the barn couldn't be heard from the living quarters, which meant the Grubers likely didn't go to the barn to respond to calls for help. They would have to have been summoned to the barn by someone they knew. As discussed in the previous episode, Andreas Gruber and his daughter Victoria may have had an incestuous relationship. Andreas could have even been the father of Victoria's two-year-old son, Josef. Andreas was allegedly so protective over Victoria that he ran one of her lovers off the property with a scythe. This information, plus Andreas's infamous temper, made some wonder if Andreas Gruber could have been the murderer and then died by suicide afterwards. If true, it might not have been Andreas's first kill. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Cecilia Sr.'s second daughter, Sophia, died under mysterious circumstances. And neighbors suspected that Andreas could have lost his temper and killed the child. 
It's a popular theory, but an unlikely one. Andreas's face had been brutally beaten and was found caving in at the eye socket with shredded flesh over his cheek. These injuries would have been impossible to inflict on himself. That said, the unusual relationship between father and daughter could have created motivation for other suspects, like Victoria's first husband, the supposedly dead Carl Gabriel. When Carl moved back to his parents' home a year after marrying Victoria, many believed the separation was tied to Victoria's rumored relationship with her father. If Carl knew about the alleged affair, the possibility that his daughter, Cecilia Jr., might have actually been fathered by Andreas could have driven him to murder. The strength of this motive prompted Police Sergeant Ludwig Meichel to point out an unusual discrepancy not picked up on by prior investigators. Carl's body had never been recovered from war. A soldier who'd been close to Carl claimed to have seen his dead body on the battlefield. The man insisted it was him, but Carl's face was somewhat disfigured. For years, everyone had assumed Carl Gabriel died before the murders at Hinterkaifeck. But this changed after World War II. Around 1950, a man claimed that in 1917, three years after Carl's supposed death, he met someone who fit Carl's description. The man introduced himself as Gabriel of Hinterkaifeck. After World War II, a group of German veterans experienced a similar run-in. After returning home from a Soviet prison, the POWs claimed they'd encountered a Bavarian-speaking Soviet officer who knew of Hinterkaifeck and knew it very well. Not only did the man know of the farm, he claimed to be the Gruber's murderer. They speculated the officer was the long-lost Carl Gabriel. Why these soldiers believed the officer was Victoria's former husband is unclear. But before World War II, Carl reportedly said he wanted to flee to Russia to get away from the Grubers. The lack of Carl's body, rumors of his escape to Russia, and his strong motivation made Carl a strong candidate for the Hinterkaifeck killer. But once again, no hard evidence was ever found. Detectives couldn't even prove Carl lived on after the war. But there was another man who had just as much reason, if not more, to want revenge on the Gruber family. The neighbor who first discovered the deceased family, Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Lorenz was born in Groburn in 1874, down the road from Hinterkaifeck. His father was an alcoholic who drove their family's farm into the ground, by the time Lorenz took over the property at 25 years old, he was deeply in debt, which no doubt took a toll on Lorenz. Determined to redeem his family's reputation, Lorenz became a leader in his local community. He always strived to do the right thing. That is, until he became entangled with the Grubers. Lorenz had a brief affair with Victoria Gruber in the months after his wife died. When Victoria suggested they get married, Lorenz tried to do the right thing. He went to her father, Andreas, for permission. 
At first, Andreas said yes, but he changed his mind when Lorenz made an ultimatum. Lorenz demanded Andreas stop sleeping with his daughter. Andreas supposedly responded, we'll see, before chasing Lorenz off the property with a scythe. When Victoria became pregnant a second time, Lorenz had Andreas arrested for incest. He claimed that Josef was Andreas's child, not his. But shortly after, Lorenz withdrew his complaint and no official action was ever taken against Andreas. Lorenz later claimed Victoria paid him to retract the statement and say he'd fathered the child. Then, two years later, Lorenz was the first person to discover the Gruber's mangled bodies. And according to a friend, Jakob Ziegel, who was also present at the time, Lorenz's behavior was unusual. He cried out for the two-year-old Yosef while digging through hay in the barn, saying, where is my little boy? Jakob also reported that Lorenz was too comfortable handling the Gruber's corpses and that Lorenz moved through the barn and into the house with purpose, as if he knew exactly where to go. At one point in the aftermath, Lorenz unlocked the front door of the Gruber's house so others could get in, and Jakob distinctly heard the sound of a key turn. You'll remember from the last episode, weeks prior to the murders, Andreas had approached Lorenz to ask about a missing set of house keys. But Lorenz told Andreas he hadn't seen them. Perhaps Lorenz had the missing key all along. Or maybe Lorenz was telling the truth when in later testimony he claimed he'd found the key already jammed in the door's lock. Lorenz reportedly never left the crime scene after finding the bodies. He even apparently did chores around Hinterkaifeck while waiting for police to arrive which meant he had the time and opportunity to tamper with incriminating evidence. Given everything, it's not surprising Jakob Ziegel believed Lorenz was the Hinterkaifeck killer. But of course, Lorenz was quick to refute his claims. In fact, Lorenz sued Jakob for libel and won. The irony being, Lorenz once drunkenly referred to himself as the Hinterkaifeck killer. He later claimed it was a joke, but naturally, there were those that wondered if it was an accidental admission of guilt. Over the years, Lorenz was interviewed several times about his involvement in the case, and some of the details in his story changed over time. In his original testimony, Lorenz adamantly declared that Yosef was his son. He also only had positive things to say about his relationship with the Grubers. But in 1931, he re-testified, saying he wasn't sure who was Yosef's father. And when asked about the Grubers this time, he responded that they were not good people, saying, Lord God had his hand in the right place. Implying God rightfully intended the murders to happen. This detail became especially relevant when Lorenz's alibi faltered. He claimed to be sleeping with his wife, Anna, during the night of the murders. But when interviewed in 1930, she claimed the couple had a spat that evening. Lorenz slept outside in the hay, alone. <laughs> 
There's only one problem with the theory that Lorenz killed the Grubers. It's unlikely he could have stayed in the attic before or after. Being such a public figure, someone surely would have noticed his absence. And ultimately, Lorenz had no history of violence. Detective Reingruber, for one, didn't believe he was capable of such a brutal slaughter. It wasn't in his character. So, like everyone else, Lorenz was ruled out. For decades, the investigation stretched on. Detective Reingruber retired. Information was shuffled between precincts. And after World War II, pieces of evidence were lost entirely. As cities like Nuremberg burned, much of the Hinterkaifeck paper trail burned with it. But in 2007, the Furstenfeldbruck Police Academy made one final attempt. They created a committee to try and solve the cold case. The team of experts spent weeks combining all of the available information on the case, amassing a 188-page report. And in the end, all members privately agreed on one theory. Which they've chosen to keep from the public. Out of respect for surviving family members, the Furstenfeldbruck Police Academy will likely continue to keep their suspicions a secret. Meaning, we may always be left guessing. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.